In this episode, Sir Topham Hatt is annoyed that the Decepticons are causing confusion and delay. And between the Puma interrupting the honeymoon and Spidey having to fight man-rats instead of spending time with Mary Jane, I can't understand why the marriage didn't work out. I'm Tom Panneries and this is Origin Story. Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are? I don't know who you are or where you came from. Now on, you do as I do. Okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries. What I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time that I collected comics. I've got three comics for you, all three of which were released on August 18th, 1987. They are Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man Annual Number 7, Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man Number 132, and The Transformers Number 34. This episode also marks the end of my coverage of both Spider-Man and of The Transformers, the latter of which has been part of the series from the very beginning in one capacity or another. But I'm going to save the robots in disguise for last, and I'm going to cover the two Spider-Man comics first, starting with the annual because, well, I'll admit that the annual is my least favorite of these three, and I just want to get through it before getting to the end of Craven's Last Hunt, as well as the end of that Transformers UK story. Plus, if we're looking at continuity here... And I really wasn't back in 1987, but let's just do so for the sake of argument. The Spectacular Spider-Man Annual takes place before Craven's Last Hunt. In fact, it takes place before you get to the final page of the Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 21. So there you go. Our story, which is entitled The Honeymoon, features a John Romita cover that shows the Puma tearing up the cover of the Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 21, and we have a caption that says, Are you ready for the honeymoon? Our creator credits are as follows. James Owsley, writer. Alan Kupperberg, layouts. Jim Fern and Al Milgram, finished art. Rick Parker, letters. Juliana Ferreter, colors. Jim Solicrip, editor. Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief. I should also note that every single creator in the credit box is listed as having a middle initial of C... I want to say is probably an inside joke of some sort, but I'm not sure exactly what it is. If someone listening to this show knows why, please get in touch with me and let me know. So, we open at an American Indian reservation near Hartsdale, New Mexico, where the Puma is being put through some ritualistic tests by his uncle, who continually disapproves of him. He then explains that he is a grievance to air. Spider-Man helped Puma during the conflict with the Beyonder. Yes, we're making a Secret Wars 2 reference here, and the Puma has never properly repaid that debt. The Puma, and at this point, our verdim is Thomas Fireheart, which is his real name, says that he'll make up for it. In Cassis, a small village near the south of France, Peter and MJ check into the villa and are, that's owned by Batman, I mean her ex-boyfriend named Bruce, and they have their honeymoon. 
As MJ runs into people she knows from the world of modeling, Peter gets jealous and feels inadequate. They head back to the villa, and after some serious uh, snuggling on the beach, sand everywhere, uh, they come back to find Thomas Fireheart sitting in the living room. And Thomas is not there to antagonize Peter, though. Instead, he's there to offer him a job at his company. But first, he needs help recovering two expensive eggs named the Ova Ignata. They're basically like Fabergé eggs. Anyway, Puma is going to retrieve one of them while Peter is tasked with finding the other one, which is hidden at the Basilica of St. Victor. Puma has even brought along a Spider-Man suit that his people reverse-engineered. Later, MJ has a crazy night with some model friends while Peter swings around the city. At first, he discovers that the webbing that Thomas reverse-engineered is not as good as his, and he has to compensate it for his weakness. He then breaks into one of Thomas's labs and steals the chemicals he needs to engineer his own web fluid. And that works, but it's a little too strong and acidic to everything it touches. Peter winds up taking on ninjas, the silver ball thingy from Phantasm, and a crook disguised as a priest. Two out of three, which were set up by Thomas Fireheart as a way to test Spider-Man. The priest actually is trying to steal something. When all is said and done, Peter returns the egg and the microprocessor from, Fanta- from the Phantasm Orb to Thomas and tells him to take the job and shove it. Then on the last day of their honeymoon, Peter and MJ see him again and Thomas says that he still has a debt to repay. Peter says they'll get rid of everything that he knows about him and they'll call it even. Thomas says done and he leaves and Peter and Mary Jane get ready to return to New York. That is a very quick synopsis of an annual, but I have to be honest, the story is incredibly padded out. I mean, I don't know if they even had to tell a story about the Parker's honeymoon as it is, but the contrivance being that Puma had a debt to repay because of something from Secret Wars 2 was a little... I mean, the Beyonder? Really? But anyway, I wasn't exactly sure what to make of the Puma since this was the first and, well... At this time, the only story I'd have read with him in it. Since then, I believe I think I saw another story with him that's part of the alien costume saga. But otherwise, I can't tell if he's a villain to Spider-Man or one of those odd, I-do-my-own-thing type of characters. Who might qualify as an anti-hero rather than a villain. Either way, the motivation behind his actions seems to be this debt, and that is his job offer. Which means that Peter will work for his company, but Spider-Man will work for him. And let's be honest, these type of job offers are never good. They're on the same level as Lando Calrissian's deal with Darth Vader. It just gets worse all the time. And then in order to get Peter to somehow prove himself or something, Puma sets up his heist involving an inexpensive egg and runs him through a gauntlet, not realizing that Peter's the type of person who's probably not who's probably going to get upset if you mess with him in this regard. And that proves true because Peter figures out the Phantasm Ball was from his prospective employer because he recognized the microprocessor chip as exclusive to that company. The Mary Jane side of the story is alright, at least she has something to do other than sit around and wait for Peter to get back. What bugged me was the fact that they had Peter repeatedly be insecure about being with her. Uh, you married her, man. You were dating her while she was a model. It's not like you two got married and all of a sudden you realize she's part of the jet set and you're just a normal guy. I mean, it's okay to have some reservations about things, especially considering that she probably still has some lingering issues about your, oh, I don't know, being Spider-Man. But this just comes off as a guy who has either started dating her 
and is out of his league and therefore insecure, or a guy who is going to start developing a pattern of abuse or borderline abusive behavior because he's constantly jealous? Please, get it together and write him with a little more sense. Anyway, this is not a terrible comic. It's not a great one either. It feels like kind of a warmed-over follow-up or a sequel to a much more notable story, which it more or less is. And I wish that perhaps there had been something else to tell. The writing, like I said, feels padded out to fit the length of the comic. The art is... It's serviceable at best, and overall I remember why I read this maybe once back in 1987. But have no fear... With that out of the way, I've got a better Spider-Man comic, and I'll get to that after this. Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. Join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in the many excellent comics from writer and artist Mike Grell. Warlord Worlds is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at warlordworlds.com. So, the conclusion to Craven's Last Hunt appeared in Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man, number 132. And the creative team is the same that we've had this entire storyline. J.M. Day Mateus is your writer. Mike Zeck is your penciler. Bob McCloud is your inker. Rick Parker is your letterer. Janet Jackson colored the original issue while Mike Zeck and Ian Tetralt colored the trade. Jim Salakrup was the editor. And I'm going to say that Tom DeFalco would have been the editor-in-chief at this point because all of the other books from this week have that credit. someone has the actual issue and can confirm this, please just let me know. Our story is called Ascending, and the Mike Zek cover features Vermin attacking Spider-Man in the sewers. It's a good cover, one that promises us a conclusion to our story and shows us that there will be a confrontation between these two characters, something that we were promised of in the previous part. We begin in those sewers as Spider-Man crawls through sludge and compares to having been buried alive and wishes that he were was home with his wife, even though he has to take care of this particular problem, as Vermin has been menacing people in New York City and was recently tortured and then let go by Craven, so he's definitely dangerous. Spidey crawls out of a pipe into a main part of the sewer system and is attacked by several rats. He presses on, thinking that the rats will lead him to Vermin. At Craven's mansion, we see a grave being dug in the New York City police acting on an anonymous tip, finding a signed confession by Craven wherein he details everything from the past few weeks. Spider-Man finds Vermin and they begin fighting. Vermin is vicious and appears to get the upper hand, even throwing Spider-Man under the river of sewage. Spidey then takes advantage of the situation and hides in the rafters while Vermin looks around and worries that he'll get hurt again. 
Spider-Man then webs him up and tries to explain to Vermin that Craven did all of this and that he is going to try to get him some help courtesy of Reed Richards. But since this means going up to the surface and into the daylight, Vermin attacks Spider-Man, who then runs and climbs up into the street. Vermin follows. He appears in broad daylight and is almost hit by a car until Spider-Man swings by, saves him, webs him up, and delivers him to the police. Spidey then swings home. We see that it's the next day because the Daily Bugle has already run the story about Craven's confession, and he arrives at his apartment and has a reunion with Mary Jane. Across town, Craven's servants bury his casket, which is draped in his loincloth, and we get and we close with the same variation on the Blake poem that we had from the first part. Spider, spider, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? I've heard criticism of this storyline before by saying it's rather anticlimactic, and it was something I also talked about uh, last time I covered a Craven's Last Hunt part. And I understand where that comes from. Craven, who was the villain of the story, kills himself in part five. And while Vermin, who is definitely a lesser villain in the story, is the focus of part six. And there does seem to be a fair amount of mopping up that happens here. But I think that's also because the story was published in six parts, and therefore J.M. DeMatteis had to end each of those parts with some sort of climactic moment for the issue. I wonder if this were a complete graphic novel, if he would have interspersed Craven's suicide with Spider-Man's hunting vermin so they would have happened around the same time, or if he would have just shifted it to later in the story. The timeline is a little odd to me. Spider-Man basically spends all night looking for vermin in the sewers, and I believe we're supposed to think that when vermin gets to the surface, it's right around sunrise? The sky is colored in an orange hue that suggests either sunrise or sunset, and since the majority of the story is taking place in some sort of darkness, I'm going to say that it's a sunrise because of, well, the the symbolism involved there. It makes sense. But would the police have had time to finish their investigation of Craven's house and release something including photos to the police with enough time for the Daily Bugle to make its late edition deadline? I know it's a Spider-Man comic, and therefore the Bugle's basically taking the place of the Expositional News Network, copyright Michael Bailey, but is that realistic? Am I overthinking this? Probably. Because it's still a satisfying ending to a really great story. Spider-Man never has to fight Vermin. He realizes that Vermin is more or less an animal that has been manipulated into doing what he has been doing, first by Baron Zemo, who created him, and then by Kraven. Spider-Man wants to help Vermin by possibly curing him, and that means he won't take him down unless he has to. Plus, he also realizes that Vermin has the ability to tear him to shreds quite literally, and that's why he runs at the end. It's pretty smart on his part, because he essentially disables his foe by bringing him to his turf, and then wraps him up. Then, there is a great scene with a reunion with MJ, because she's sitting on the bed in a nightshirt, It's pretty hot, too, by the way. Looking through old photo albums because she clearly stayed up all night hoping that Peter would come home and has been doing all she can to help keep herself occupied. When he comes back, the caption is, I'm home, and you know it's for good. I also like the parallel structure of the grave digging scene, which reflects the one from part one where Craven buried Spider-Man. All in all, for a story done in 1987... Demetrius Zach and McLeod delivered a well-composed, decompressed tale that delivered in a way that I had never seen before, 
and I think a number of other people really hadn't seen before. It has held up incredibly well in my reread, and I'm glad I have it in trade so I can just pull it off the shelf whenever I want. I'm going to take another break, and I'll be back with my last comic of this episode, The Transformers, number 34. Stick around. Play a trailer. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, the DC Comics Presents Show, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, It's Superman, the Schuster Herald Podcast, The Carousel Podcast, Superman Forever Radio, Superman Lives, Up, Up and Away, Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy Podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Brad, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac. I'm Adam. Dave Eunice and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The Transformers number 34 is the second part of the Man of Iron storyline that started in the previous issue. And if you remember my coverage of issue number 33, you remember that this is a reprint of the first UK Transformers story. I'm reading it from the Transformers Classics Volume 3 trade, which is put out by IDW. The cover is by Tom Morgan and shows the Decepticon fighter jet attacking Optimus Prime... Yes, Prime is back for this special story, which takes place completely outside of the continuity of the regular series, because he died in issue number 24. But since he died in 24, it is great to see him. Woohoo! Anyway, our creative team is as follows. Steve Parkhouse, writer. Michael Collins, artist. Richard Starkings, letterer. The original coloring in the UK magazine, which was restored for the IDW trade, was by John Ridgway and Michael Collins. The American adaptation from 1987 was recolored by Gina Hart. Your editor was Don Daly, and Tom DeFalco was now the editor-in-chief. At the end of the last issue, Jazz kidnaps Sammy Harker. That's where we pick up with him, explaining to Sammy who he is and why he's there. He's taking him to see some of his friends. In other words, the Autobots. And they're joined by Mirage and tell trailbreaker who head back to the Autobot ship unfortunately they're attacked by two decepticon fighter jets who destroy trailbreaker mirage gets cloaked causing one of the jets to crash into a bridge and then sammy saves jazz from being destroyed by a head-on attack finally blue streak shows up and takes out the other jet jazz continues on to autobot headquarters where he meets optimus prime Prime tells Sammy that buried beneath the castle is some sort of ship that has been transmitting a signal, and they think it's an ancient ally of theirs who is going to take them home. They want to get to the ship before the humans excavate it and can capture it. Meanwhile, at the castle, the excavation continues, the military finds the ship and the Autobot symbol on the side of it, and the Man of Iron from the stories emerges and starts attacking the military. 
The Decepticons then show up and blast the Man of Iron into smithereens. But before they can take the ship, the Autobots show up and fight them, taking them out and driving them away. Sammy reunites with his father and Optimus Prime decides the Decepticons seem to have other plans for their time on Earth, which means that they need to stay on Earth themselves. He instructs Jazz to blow up the ship, not realizing what's in it. And what is in the ship? Another man of iron, some sort of stasis. And we get this narration. Deep beneath the Autobots' feet, in a sealed chamber, a special Autobot lay waiting. He was Navigator, Warrior, the Guardian of Autobot Destiny. In his long, slow machine world of a million years were as fleeting as seconds. Human history had passed over him. Locked in his dormant brain was the location of the planet Cybertron. He waited only to be reactivated, reintegrated with his mission, restored to live. His attendant was no more. The link between them was severed. Alone in the darkness, he patiently beamed his signal. The same pattern of impulses. Waiting. Jazz could know nothing of this. He only knew of his friendship with a small boy. And what would happen if his enemies prevailed? He fired. The craft and all its contents instantly vaporized in a massive explosion. Nothing remained. Instructions were issued by nameless authorities. Trucks came. All traces of the craft and its final resting place were obliterated. Summer came around again. The tourists descended, distracted by stories of UFOs and mysterious sightings. They found only an empty ruin, echoing with memories. Autumn came. Years fell. Sammy was a year older, a year wiser. He never saw Jazz again. But on a clear, sharp night, when the stars glittered like needles and the night winds rattled his window, he, then he slept a fitful, fearful sleep, and the Man of Iron walked once more through his dreams. I loved this issue back in 1987. It was the only comic aside from G.I. Joe vs. the Transformers that I, had, that I had that featured Optimus Prime. Plus, it felt like it was some sort of legendary tale or something, not just robots fighting one another. I must have read this thing a million times. In fact, I'm pretty sure that my copy of this comic was one of those well-loved comics that had a rolled spine and everything. 30 years later, I feel the same way. Much like that last issue, the artwork is gorgeous. And the storytelling is done in a way that actually is more sophisticated than what the book usually does. This doesn't talk down to its audience. It's not like the main Marvel stories ever did, but I feel like the storytellers made the Man of Iron story feel like it was smarter than the average Transformers story. Again, I think that's because most of the story was told from the point of view of the humans involved. So the robots were not as front and center as, and seemed to be a little more alien and a little more supernatural. I'm still fascinated by the fact that there was this Autobot buried in England for a million years, sending out a signal and essentially being a beacon that would turn into the way home for the stranded Autobots. Plus, I'm still fascinated by this character of the Man of Iron, who is real, but just as much as he is, he still winds up being this myth, this being of myth, that even though he saw Jazz Sammy dreams of in some way that he would dream of dragons or giants or something. As I said, this is my last ever issue of Transformers. At one point, I would read issue 80 because there was a random copy left in the magazine rack of my barber shop. But for the most part, this was it. While I never got the conclusion to any of the storylines that were going on in the book or on the regular, 
This particular story, The Man of Iron, wound up being my favorite and the one that I would come back to again and again and again. And that'll do it for now. I'll be back on August 25th with G.I. Joe Special Missions number 8. Until then, check out the blog at popcultureaffidavit.com. Leave some feedback on the Facebook group at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit or by emailing me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at popaff, P-O-P-A-F-F. And until then, thanks for listening and take care.